welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. As my voice cracks, I'm your host, Sam Vicini. We're presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, Mark Schindler is in the building. He's over to my right on the screen to his left. I don't know. I'm just going to keep talking here. We're going to talk today about a few different topics. We want to give the Nuggets their flowers and love after a sweep of the Los Angeles Lakers that it feels like did not get the necessary affection and love that it deserves because LeBron hinted at retirement after the sweep. And that became the talking point. You know, I get why it became the talking point, but on this show, we want to give the Denver Nuggets the flowers at the top of the show, because that is where it is deserved. Then we will talk about the Los Angeles Lakers and where they go in the offseason. I think it's a really, really interesting conversation because there are a number of potential options on the table for them. Number three, we're going to talk a little bit about Celtics Nuggets. We're not going to go crazy on it in all likelihood. We're going to talk a little bit about them. I still want to see one more game from the Celtics, in all honesty, that brings everything together until we find out where they're actually going to be able to head. We will see. Finally, we're going to talk a little bit about some NBA draft stuff. Mark does not have any fire takes right now. I'm so disappointed in you. Uh, <laughs> I'm disappointed. Didn't, didn't bring anything to the table. Did, didn't like. Didn't wasn't like. Oh yeah, like I, I need to. I need to get this burning hot take off my chest. Just didn't have it today. I don't know. Yeah, I'm. A, I'm a piece of shit for that. I apologize, Sam. Um, <laughs> I have, in my defense, I've been in like four different cities in the last six days. So I. Uh, I've been all over the place keeping up with the NBA and watching everything in the W and doing all the media stuff on top of that too has been fully soaking up my time, but we are making it work. Um, I'm, I'm excited to be back here with you, man. It's the best. Okay. So let's start with the Denver Nuggets. So the Denver Nuggets beat the Los Angeles Lakers 113 to 111 in game four in Los Angeles. That is a sweep. And I think it's just worth diving into the way that this team was built. We've talked, I've talked a lot about the X's and O's of that series at this point. Los mm-hmm. Angeles just never came up with any sort of answer for Denver defensively. I do think there is something to the idea that the shortened time between games, the one day rest between every single game, definitely played a role for an older Lakers team, particularly for LeBron James, who was absolutely outstanding in game four, scoring 40 points, 10 rebounds, nine assists, played phenomenally well. But like, it, it just feels like it was hard for LeBron to get separation in the way we've seen LeBron before. It felt like it was a little bit tougher for him to get the consistent penetration we've seen from him previously. It, it just felt like pulling teeth a little bit on offense for the Lakers at times in this series. But I think that's credit to Denver, and I want to talk a little bit about how Denver built this thing now. And obviously it all starts with Nikola Jokic, and I'm not going to ask you the stupid-ass question like, did you ever see this from Nikola Jokic when he was a prospect? I'll ask you this. At what point did you believe that Nikola Jokic wasn't just like a – good you know all-star level nba player but could be this good and take a team to an nba finals that's a really good question um i that's such a good question i want to say um 
I want to say it was during his second year, honestly. Like that's you know wow, or not not like to to be to take a team to the NBA finals or say, but I mean like that he yeah. could become a superstar. I think when you were just watching him play, one of the things that I think for me, and this is not to say that I'm special, I just think this is just how I compartmentalize it. Like when I watch a guy where I've just never seen anybody like them before, I don't know how to to like put them in my head, um, and it just works. Like that's. To me, like that is how I would say I categorize superstardom to a lot of people. Like, um, and I think it's one of the things that's tried to make me rethink how I look at things in the draft from time to time because it's like, all right, well, it's funky, it's weird, but also it's incredibly effective. I've just never really seen it before, at least not at a high level. So, like, what does that mean? You know, what do you take from this? And I think to me, yeah, like I look at that back end uh, of Denver's season in 2016-2017 when he becomes a full-time starter um, after kind of, you know, playing as the the first man off the bench for a lot of the beginning of the season. And then he's, you know, he's ripping off all these triple doubles. Um, He's scoring 40 points in in multiple games. Like he's – I think he scored in – I pulled it up right now. He's He scored double digits in uh, March – every single game except for one and like i think that's that's to me like and especially knowing what that roster was at the time like they were interesting but not good like that we, i would actually love to talk more about like just that roster in general and how they got to this point but um i think for me like becoming like the best player in basketball i don't know if i saw that but i think the bones of like this guy could be a top 10 player in the nba like i think that we saw that for the first time in 2017 is where i'm at I think the bones of it is right in 2017. I mean, 2016, 17 is the year they traded Yusuf Nurkic, right? And it's clear that that trade was to clear out the space for Nikola Jokic to be able to develop into this kind of player that he became. I was a late adopter on Jokic. Yeah. I was fucking wrong on this because this tends to like not be my player type. And I tend to be a little bit late on outliers in this way uh i saw the vision i saw the feel i got all of that i also was just worried about like the conditioning and then i'd be worried about you know the ability to consistently score uh on the interior i knew he had great touch but like wasn't really shooting from three yet at that point either and really even up until you know what i would say I would say the first MVP year was like the first year he was truly consistent as like a shooter from distance. Mm-hmm. I will say that like, I definitely bought all-star upside by like year three, at least uh, I got the talent there, but I was late on Jokic in like a real way in terms of like, being able to be an MVP candidate at the very least. I think Denver fans thought this dude was like an MVP candidate. Certainly not in 2017, but honestly, I would say like the first all-star year in like 2018, 19, I I think at that point they realized like, this isn't just like a great NBA player. That's an all-star like, Adam Mares, like the guys uh, over there, like they really truly believed 
in Jokic is not just being a good player, but being like a genuinely, truly elite player uh, in the NBA. And yeah, I mean, it, it's a credit to them. And and by the way, the other people that believed are the Nuggets front office. Like they, they, they felt like they really had something here. And it's just fascinating. I mean, look, you, you said like you wanted to look at that 2016-17 roster. And it's, it is a roster. Like, oh man. It, it, it's a fascinating group, right? And like, you know, th- that is, that is uh, what, third year Gary Harris. It's let me, let me just pull up right now. This, it's the Noah Gallinari still. Yeah. Gary Harris, like you mentioned, I think second or third year Gary Harris, who never forget Gary. Like I was one of the people I was, for me, I was a late adopter on Jamal Murray. I liked Jamal Murray. I thought it was me good. He took a minute yeah. to get going and Gary looked like a future all-star. Like he was so good. Um, but yeah, Wilson Chandler, Will Barton, Jameer Nelson is starting games for them. Like age 34, 35, Jameer Nelson is starting games. Yeah. Emmanuel Moutier, never forget. Yep. Uh, Mason Plumlee's on that team after a trade. Uh, obviously, Jamal in his rookie year. Kenneth Fareed yep. is still playing minutes for them. Nurk, Darrell Arthur is playing real minutes. Wancho was playing minutes. Like that was. Mike Miller is on this roster, by the way. Yeah. Uh, this was a team. Like they, it, it was, it, it was certainly a team, but I think like they were in such an odd place because I, um, I loved the, the nuggets so much because they were like, you know me, like I love those guys who are kind of fringy. Like Wilson yeah. Chandler is one of my like 10, 15 favorite NBA players of all time. He was just super fun. Honestly, like it sounds so wild to say, but like, I think he was like five years too late in getting drafted. I love it. Like straight up, like he, no dude. Watch watching his New York Knicks highlights, or that's that's my favorite shit. I love it. Those Knicks teams were so like blah, but he was just really fun. Yeah, you know, I think he was. He went like what, like 39th in his draft, and I think he averaged 14 or 15 as a rookie. It was just fun, man. Really fun player. But point being, when uh, well, I, I think that I think the point here is there. This is very clearly a Nuggets team in between eras, right? Like. Yeah. These are like, this is remnants of the Carmelo Anthony trade mixed with like Jamal Murray, Malik Beasley, Nikola Jokic, you know, the guys they drafted after that, right? As they were trying to rebuild and transition into it. Mm-hmm. And I think that like, this is where the, the big word for them is like patience. Like this was just a super patient build, a very patient organization that was willing to let Nikola Jokic build into the player that he was. And I I think I would be remiss if I didn't talk a little bit about like Jokic and their process, like for drafting and evaluating him just because like, I literally wrote what is probably the definitive story about that at this point. Uh, Talked to like Tim Connolly, Misko Raznatovich, like literally like everybody associated with Jokic uh, from like pre-draft, you know, it, you know, hoop summit, everything like that. I don't know if people remember this, but like, and this is what I led that article with that I wrote a couple years ago. Like a week before the draft, on the day that is like the early entry date for international players, Mishko Raznatovich, who is Jokic's agent, tweeted Nikola Jokic will be withdrawing from the 2024 NBA draft. And essentially Jokic 
the thing was like that they Mishko, like I guess, didn't have a guarantee for Jokic, right? And he did this to kind of try and build like excitement to try and be like, see if any team would come out of the woodwork and be like, no, this is the guy that we want. And this was after, if people remember, the 2014 Nike Hoop Summit, where he came in and was like, kind of frankly, an afterthought at that Hoop Summit. Like he was by far not like the most most relevant player at that hoop, hoop summit. So like looking back at that Nike hoop summit roster, he, he was not even the most relevant player to end up as a first round pick for the Denver nuggets or as a draft pick from the Denver nuggets on the world team, because that was Emmanuel Moody, who went seventh overall uh, in the 20, uh, I guess that would have been twenty. 14 or 2015 it would have been 2015 nba draft Mm -hmm. so like you go back through this roster and just counting the number of players that people were more excited about than Nikola Jokic, cliff alexander stanley johnson tyus jones jaleel okafor kelly Oubre for sure miles turner justice winslow that's like seven guys there on the world team Honestly, they were more excited about seeing Clint Capella at that point. Damian Inglis, do you remember Damian Inglis, the like super long-arm guy that ended up remember. playing for the Bucks? He ended up playing and like playing super well at that hoop summit and like earning like an early second round pick. I think he went ahead of Nikola Jokic in that draft. Trey Lyles was like a five-star kid. Emmanuel Moutier, that's 10. Jamal Murray, that's 11. And then Carl Towns is 12 who was on that roster. There were literally a dozen players, maybe more that NBA teams were more interested in seeing than Nikola Jokic. And then you see this dude come in and he's just slicing dudes in ball screens with Nikola Jokic. Like it was awesome. It was super, super impressive to see it happen. And that's what ended up earning him the notice of NBA scouts and Denver, you know, Tim Connolly was at that event and he told me about how he gets into a car with Arturis Karnisovic, who was their assistant GM at the time. Now the head basketball, head of basketball operations for the bulls. And he goes, Oh my God, like Jokic is killing these dudes out here. And he still was like 250 pounds, six foot 10, kind of pudgy, like kind of like not in shape at all. And even after he sliced and diced those dudes all week in practice, there was like no, no excitement really about him in the gym. That's how he ends up going 42 or whatever he goes. But fast forward to like the week before the draft, Mishko says he's pulling him out. And I tweeted about this earlier this week, but like, you know, obviously you can't really do like quote unquote promises or anything, but they, they called Mishko and like expressed their disappointment that Jokic would be pulling out of the draft. And ultimately the reason that Raznatovich like trusted the nuggets that what they said would happen. Right. Right because so much of the draft process is about trust 
for these guys that are stash picks and these guys that are international players. So much of this is about trust. Do you know why Excel, Bayo Basket, Mishko Raznatovich ultimately trusted the Denver Nuggets to select Nikola Jokic and like believed in him? It was because the year before the Nuggets had taken, or I think they traded for him on draft night, Joffrey Laverne at like 55 (laughs) or 53. Yeah. And like Joffrey was never going to be like some, you know, high level elite level NBA player, but they did right by Joffrey Laverne and like were on top of him the whole year that he was like overseas and like really took care of him and like really were all in on him essentially. And like, confirmed that like look we pay attention we care about our guys like we're not just going to leave him overseas and not pay attention to him like we're going to actually make sure and be engaged on that front so literally the reason that the Denver Nuggets end up with Nikola Jokic in many ways one of the one of the significant reasons is because they took Joffrey Laverne at 50 55 53 whatever they took him at that year in the previous draft. That's crazy. Like all of the little decisions that NBA organizations make, they add up. You can't take shortcuts. Like you can't do these little cost cutting measures. You can't do these things. Right. And because they didn't, because they were so engaged on that front and they did right by one player, they end up with a superstar and obviously they evaluated him. Well, they had him as a first round pick that year. They told me like they really liked him, but they also took Yusuf Nurkic and Gary Harris ahead of them in that draft. Like, it's not like they were geniuses. It's just that they, they got one thing right after they took care of a guy the previous year. And they were able to build that trust to be able to keep Jokic in the draft. All the little things matter. That's the important thing here. All of the little things matter. And I think that little decision is emblematic of how this Denver Nuggets roster was built in many ways. Yeah. I uh, There's so many things to pick apart with that. that uh, that's so fascinating. I didn't know that you wrote that. I, I'm going to have to, you're going to have to link that to me because I, I never read that before. Um, that's fascinating. Uh I think like part of what was fun for me in going back and looking at all this, because especially with, with Melo retiring um, and just them making the the finals in general for the first time in my life, um, I just thought about it so much. And I put it out as like just a meme and a joke on, on Twitter, but also seriously, you know how much I love Paul Millsap. Like I put out the domino, of, like the small domino of Paul Millsap, three for 90, July 2nd, 2017. And then the big domino is 2023 finals appearance. And like, it sounds ridiculous, but like, like you mentioned, the small things happening um, for me, at least in my lifetime, Paul was the biggest free agent that I'd ever signed in Denver during my life, like legitimately. And I think it's easy to forget because he is much like everybody who played on that Atlanta team, really quiet, like not a big media guy, just, from everything I've heard, actually awesome dude around Atlanta. He's still in Atlanta now, does a ton of stuff there, but like just was really quiet. Like, so people didn't really like, I mean, he wasn't flashy, but like, again, like someone who I wish 
got drafted like 10 years later because good guy can you imagine him today um but point being like legitimate all-star borderline all-nba guy signs a near max deal to go play in denver on i believe it was the team uh, so it was before the team they went 40 and 42 that year with Jokic. Um, when they started to really come on, they had the young talent. They really didn't have that vet who pushes them over the top. He goes there. And I just like having that one guy who commits to going somewhere is so massive. Um, yep. It sounds like such a minor thing, but like being able to get that top 25 talent who helps like reinforce your foundation and, and up the floor and the ceiling simultaneously it's huge. And I think it's like easy to lose sight of because he wasn't a big focal point by the time they got to their contending stage. But I generally don't think that they get there without him. And I think that just brings up so much more for them from, from where they go, you know, and uh, it's all the other things like you're mentioning, like their, their patience is kind of wild. Like, and I think it's less to just say like, Oh, well, this is the greatest organization of all time. More just like, it's so different now. Like, I think part of it probably is like, they just have, you can say a lot of things about the Cronkies for sure as an ownership group and, and what they do or don't do with their money. Um, but I think like looking at this overall, like you just don't find very often now where a team is able to take six years to build something. And it's not that they built this with six years in mind. Like they got absolutely smashed with injuries. And I think that got so undersold in, in, in the, in the background, like how much injuries yep. really hurt this team. Like, and I'm not just trying to go to bat for them. I think, like, I mean, they have legitimately poor showings in the playoffs. But the point is, you don't get the chance to, sh- to shit the bed in the playoffs more than once most of the time. And, like, I still think, like, when you look at what happened against Phoenix, that's so much more about who they didn't have and Phoenix being good. And you look at all these other things, like, okay, well, you know, the, the Aaron Gordon trade happens, and that team looked like a title contender right there, right then over that like eight game stretch before Jamal gets injured. And then, okay, that happens. And it's the bubble. It's like, oh, well, damn, you know, that that's kind of out the window. We'll see what happens next year. MPJ gets injured after like, again, easy to forget. Like MPJ averaged what, like 30 and eight on like 70% true shooting, like the last 35 games of that season. Like it literally looked like he's a like on the verge of this guy. If he just doesn't get injured, he's going to be an all NBA player gets injured the next year. So, like, it's just this confluence of all these little things where, like, they still built into being a very good team, but had always, like, that thing that pushed them away from becoming a great team. And, like, we easy to forget about. And not, I'm not just saying this because I love the dude, but, like, Gary Harris's injury and falloff was huge, man. Like, especially with Jamal. Like, I really don't think Jamal super established himself until like year three, four, you know, like starting to really become mm-hmm. that guy. The consistency was always a thing. I still think like the consistency, we finally have hit that point in like the last year or two where he got to that. But like, like we mentioned, like even if, even when it looked like Gary might not be an all-star guy, like it was like, okay, well we have this dude who shoots 40% from three is an all defense level guy. That's perfect. Like we need that. And then his, like I've talked to so many people in Denver about like what the hell happened. Like I think a lot of it was just, confluence of 8 million lower body injuries happening and it's been awesome to see his shot come back around but like his offense just died and he became like borderline not unplayable because they needed him defensively but he was so hard to have on the court offensively with where he was at and like when you look at exactly like you mentioned just like when you have all those guys like the Emmanuel Moody I picked did not work 
at all. And yeah. just having the way that this stuff played out is it is fascinating to go back and look at. And you can go even farther and look like, okay, the 57 one Andre Iguodala team after the Carmelo trade happens. Yep. And then Andre bounces, not saying it was right or wrong, but he does. And that team, George Carl gets fired, the Brian Shaw era. I'm not old enough to really have thoughts on what he was as a coach, but that era does not work out at all. And then they just become this kind of like hodgepodge of we have guys who can play basketball and they're kind of, well, like that's a- what the, that's what the post Carmelo Anthony was like hodgepodge yeah. of guys that can play basketball. And they just like kind of continued to find guys that were good. Like, I think that's what this front office like always did. Like, seriously like throughout the conversation i had with tim Connolly, like when i wrote this Jokic thing as they were building this thing because the core is basically the same outside of the aaron gordon move i don't think they had aaron gordon by 2021 maybe they did by the end of the year i can't remember but like they they'll be they're so up like up front with you like look we think we do a good job of evaluating but like this is luck. <laughs> like so much of this, like hitting on Jokic is luck. Like we missed on Emmanuel Moutier. Like they, they missed on a couple of players. Like they missed less than other teams do. And I think that's what matters. Mm-hmm. But like their goal was like, we're going to take good people that we want to have in the organization and just continue to slowly methodically build. And I think that the good people aspect of it cannot go understated having good dudes around that are good with being around one another is a critical piece of this because we can talk all we want about this like slow methodical build right and just like going down the road and like continuing to get the guys that you want continuing to evaluate well if you don't find the right mix of personalities and human beings that can stand to be around one another for five years, six years, seven years, as this thing builds, you're going to have to move them. And your whole build then changes. Your whole idea of what this roster can be changes. And I think that like, that's where, uh, frankly, like let, let's, so like, let's be real about this one. Like there were questions about Michael Porter Jr., coming out of college in terms of this, mm-hmm. in terms of like, you know, w- what kind of person is he? Uh, not to say like it was a terrible, like off the court, but like what, what kind of like, w- what kind of locker room presence is he going to be, especially if he's not the primary option, right? Because all throughout Michael Porter's career at that point, He'd been the guy. He'd been the dude. He was a top three prospect in his class. He was unbelievable. What Denver nailed in terms of evaluation, he'd be good with that. We we didn't know that at the time. But they nailed the fact that he would be good with that and that he would be good winning and being on a winning team and being that guy. And shout out to Michael Porter for being willing to be that guy. And for proving, you know, anybody that had questions about him in that regard wrong, because they existed. And shout out to, you know, Jamal Murray. Like, Jamal Murray is always a guy that, like, people thought would be, like, a great character guy. Shout out to, you know, Aaron Gordon, another guy that's, like, an unbelievable character guy. You just, you look up and down the roster, and they've just done this tremendous job of finding these core pieces that were 
going to be good with being around one another for so long. Like that, that, that was again, like when I talked to Tim for that story, like that was such a big part of what he told, like it was, we need to find people that will allow us to build in this way. Like they really truly cared about the human aspect of it. And because of that, they were able to make this slow methodical build. And I think that's huge. Yeah, no, definitely, man. Um, I couldn't agree more. The the other thing is like Denver, I think did a really good job of evaluating skill sets that are untraditional. So like one of the things that Tim Connolly told me is like, I, I asked them specifically, like, is there something that Nikola Jokic did that you can pinpoint that you guys really connected to in the pre-draft process that you thought was like an undervalued part of his game or like an undervalued, like a marginal inefficiency for him as a prospect? And he was like, look, I've thought about this a lot, essentially, is what he said. And I think I can pinpoint like two things. So first he has the quickest, best hands that you will ever find like in a person. Like his hands are unbelievable. He told me his hands are unbelievably underrated. They allow him to be a solid defender without elite length. He has good length, but not elite length. He has the ability to play uh, without any ability to play above the rim. Also, they say the best baseball hitters like Ted Williams could see the seams of a baseball. I think he processes things that quickly, but is able to also play at his own speed. Nicola's almost like an algorithm. He sees it, mental snapshot, he's able to do it. He never gets sped up, and he's never he's almost never out of options. Most guys, first move, second move, by the time they hit the third move, they're falling over and they have no outs. Every time he catches the ball, he has 15 outs. And I think that's like... That's genius. And then like being willing to like have that guy and then having Jamal Murray as a point guard for that guy that like fits perfectly. And then understanding that Michael Porter Jr. would be the perfect off ball scorer for him because he's an awesome cutter and because he's a terrific shooter. And then understanding that the perfect guy in between them is Aaron Gordon in deciding, you know what? We're going to overpay to acquire Aaron Gordon on the trade market. Because at the end of the day, this is the exact player that we need in between these two guys. It's just all brilliant across the board. I I think that every, every NBA title contender, essentially, any NBA team that reaches this height, there's so much more luck involved with it than people like to say. These things hang like on a fucking shoestring in terms of they could go one way or another and you never know. I think Denver, obviously there are a number of moments where this could have gone wrong injuries. As you mentioned, I think is a huge critical factor here, but the fact that they were able to pinpoint the exact players that fit around their stars after they evaluated the star I think it's just so, so crazy, impressive, and valuable. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, like, hitting on the the secondary stuff is almost more important than 
hitting on the star player because I think like it's easy to find the star talent. Obviously, with, you know, I think with Jokic it was different, but in general, like I think it's very difficult to. I mean, we've just seen so many people struggle to uh, put the right talent around guys. And I think, like, just to answer a question in the pod, not in the pod, in the in the comments, um, like, from, uh, I think, Esparini put, you know, like, how important do you think that the uh, character uh, evaluation is in in the draft? And I think, like, this is not to sound like on my soapbox, but I think part of the thing where I've really started to just diverge so much from quote-unquote draft where is, like, understanding how much that stuff has to has to play in. Like, talent is incredibly important, but the ability to unlock potential, so much of that is about being in the right environment, being able to adapt to that environment, and willingness. And, like, that that is very much something you have to scout and know. Like, anybody you talk to in a front office or um, on a coaching yep. staff or a player development staff is going to talk about how important ability to adapt is because so many of these guys are – coming out of being, you know, a star-ish level player, having that kind of usage to having to figure out what they are at the next level. And that's just really damn tough for people to do. Um, so I think it's incredibly important. And like you mentioned, like, honestly, what's been – what was so fun about watching the way the Nuggets built stuff, they did a much better job of drafting for role than drafting for stars. Like, obviously, like I mean, we mentioned with Moutier um, – I think, and that's not to be unfair to him. Like more stuff happened than just that, but like he was a pretty raw prospect in that regard. Um, but like, I mean, you look at what they did role wise. Like, okay, uh, the Tyler Lydon pick sucked, but like everything else you look at, like, okay, they have Trey. Like, like Trey Lyles ended up becoming a really solid, even though he didn't end up going there. Like, well, like the, 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 we're gonna get obliterated for this, but like Denver fans look back on that and they're like, we could have had Donovan Mitchell because they traded the Donovan Mitchell pick for Tyler Lydon and Trey Lyles, essentially. Yeah. Um, look. That, that's another example of how this thing hangs on a shoestring, right? Yeah. Like, well, like exactly. That's the point. It. Like, they didn't do a good job of drafting stars, but uh, other than Nicola, but then, but like, like here's the thing: they kind of did. Like, they drafted Jokic, they drafted Murray, and they drafted Michael Porter. Like, they were the team that took the risk on Michael Porter, despite the backs like concerns that he had pre-draft. Right? Michael Porter should have gone top five in the draft if he didn't have the back concerns. Right? Oh, for like, sure. I had him, I, even with the back concerns, I had him at six on my board. And I was like, there's, this guy's just like such an immense talent that we have to take flyer on it. But like, that's, that's like a real, like they were the team that evaluated that like the risk is worth the reward here on Michael Porter. And they went for it and they nailed it. Like they got, they got the most out of that pick. So like, I know what you're saying. You're right. Like they missed Emmanuel Moutier. They missed on Mitchell. Like they missed on a few other guys. But like they they and they hit they did the Tyler Lydon pick. It it just goes to show you're never gonna get everything right. Like building a roster is so fucking hard in the NBA. You are never gonna get everything right at the end of the day. You're just not. But it's how you bounce back from that and how you give yourself outs in terms of versatility. I think Denver did a really good job of giving itself outs. And because they gave themselves outs, they really allowed themselves the ability to be patient on a lot of levels. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I think like you mentioned, hitting on everything is just not attainable. Like 
I no. think anytime that part of what is almost humbling at times in uh in talking to um in, in talking to to people who work in, in front offices and stuff is like recognizing uh, and I don't think it's everyone. I do think that a lot of times in sports, there's way too much like, well, well, you know, you gotta be the best mindset. But like, I do think there is legitimately like a pretty good understanding of in the best front offices, like we're not going to be perfect. We just have to roll with the punches and do our best. And, um, yeah. I think that stands out. No, I think that's absolutely right. It's huge. Um, just in terms of the rate, the way they built the rest of this roster out, you know, they draft, Nicole Jokic, they draft Jamal Murray. Jokic stays overseas for a year, by the way. Goes from what he was to Adriatic League MVP uh, in his pre-draft year, which is just fucking bonkers for a teenager to win Adriatic League MVP, essentially. Um, they Because he was stashed, they ended up being pretty poor the next year. They draft Jamal Murray two years later. 2015 or 2016 for Jamal Murray? I can't remember. I think it was 2015, I want to say. Yeah, let me, let me uh let me uh, I'll keep talking as we're going here. But they they draft Jamal Murray in, you know, oh, he was 20, 2016. Yeah, he was 2016. 2016 draft. Then they draft Michael Porter Jr. in 2018. And that's like the core group of this team, but meanwhile throughout that time, you know, prior to the uh, you know, Michael Porter draft in 2018, they go 46 and 36 as you mentioned that year. Um And they finished ninth in the West, which allows them to continue to stay in the lottery and end up with Michael Porter Jr. So they're they're building this team, you know, still winning games while building this team. But they're building the team out in like a real tangible way. That 2018 roster, Gary Harris, Will Barton, Nicole Jokic, Jamal Murray, Wilson Chandler, Paul Millsap. The trade for Yusuf Nurkic ended up being Mason Plumley, and I think a first uh, for Nurkic and a second, if memory serves. I think so. They still have Emmanuel Moutier on the roster. Um, and then 2018 hits, and that's where like Jokic goes supernova. Jamal Murray takes a leap immediately. Gary Harris becomes like a really high level three and D guard. The other guy that's like sneaky important, I think, as well, is they hit on the Monte Morris pick too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Monte Morris is a guy that they take in 2017 and he ends up being like one of the best backup point guards in the NBA. Another guy, by the way, where they hit on some really, really sharp, uh, like sharp undervalued assets, taking him in the fifties. He's like a six foot one guard, but he could really shoot. And he was like the best decision maker in college basketball, except the record for assist to turnover ratio in college basketball that season. And was like incredible and unbelievable. Um, then after that, you end up in a circumstance where they, they also take Malik Beasley, right? Like Malik Beasley ends up being like a trade asset on some level for them. Um, and the other guy that I think is like somewhat important to note here is Jeremy Grant's on this roster for a year, right? That is so and easy to forget. <laughs> like, I, 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 actually, I mean that respectfully, but like, yeah, it's no, it's no, no, of course. But I think that what's important about this part of it is that Jeremy Grant is like kind of the test drive for Aaron Gordon in some ways, right? Like they have this, 
you know, Jeremy Grant come in uh, after trading for him. And they realized that like, oh my God, like this is perfect. Like we have this guy who can like really crash and like play defense and be able to be energetic. Jeremy Grant that played for the Denver Nuggets was drastically different than the Jeremy Grant that we know now playing for Portland and playing for even Detroit a couple years ago. Um, he was like crashing the glass. He was almost like a, he's almost like a big as opposed to a wing. Like he was a center at times uh, in small ball lineups and was like huge for them, like switchable, athletic, energetic. And I think that getting him allowed them to know we can go, you know, they lose him in free agency, but getting him allowed them to know we can go all in on Aaron Gordon and we can feel good about it and feel like this is the exact guy that fits because we've seen this before. Like there's no, there's no real risk here for like, we know Aaron's the guy that like fits our roster and and works. So I think that's huge. They also obviously drafted Jared Vanderbilt as well. Like Jared, like, didn't play a ton in 2020 at all, but like, that's an important thing as well. Like that's another asset for them. Another valuable player that like literally they just played in the playoffs and started multiple games. Um, It's just, they nailed the big decisions. They nailed the little decisions. Even someone like PJ Dozier was like really good prior to tearing his ACL again that year and like pj is a guy that had injury concerns coming out of south carolina as well that's why he goes undrafted but like they took a real shot on him it worked out they they were just willing to take like injury flyers on guys and you know guys with like you know yellow flags in the draft process or maybe even they were flagged by some teams red right like do not draft they were a little bit more open to taking those chances i think and then you know they do acquire you know aaron gordon in 2021 and that essentially is the core They're, you know, Jokic, Jamal Murray, Aaron Gordon, and Michael Porter Jr. That's your foursome and you're going to ride with it. And then unfortunately, like Mark said, they get hurt that last season. They were just really all over the place. Um, you know, it was, it was hard for Jokic. You didn't have Jamal Murray, didn't have Porter. They had no creation outside of them. Um, they obviously like drafted bones Highland as well. I think Bones is like categorized fairly as a miss, even though he's like a very clear talent. Uh, it's just that it didn't work within their front office, right? Or within their like locker room, seemingly on some level. Uh, it seems like Bones wanted a bigger role and like reasonable. That's fine. Um, but they, they move off of these guys that I think aren't fits pretty quickly as well. Yeah, And I think it's a credit to them again. And then this offseason came like kind of the final touches, right? So they get Contavious Caldwell Pope for that importantly aforementioned, you know, Monte Morris pick, where it's Will Barton and Monte Morris for, you know, Ish Smith and uh, Contavious Caldwell Pope. And KCP is like the perfect defensive wing that can take some pressure off of Jamal Murray and can knock down shots from three and space the floor and they can play five out while still having like playmakers and dribble pass shoot guys all over the court. They draft Christian Brown. Christian Brown is phenomenal and incredible uh, in terms of being a role player that's athletic and has potential to shoot and like just be an energy guy. And then Jeff Green as well. Like Jeff Green is a guy that was like on the scrap heap for a while and like was getting minimum contracts and Jeff Green's what they're, you know, sixth or seventh most important player now seventh most important player now so uh 
And then the final piece of this is Bruce Brown. And Bruce Brown has been enormous for them as essentially a guy that can play with or without Jokic because of his playmaking ability, his increased confidence as a shooter, all of this. I think it's just absolutely enormous. Yeah, no, um, I... It's it's interesting too because I think so much of the year, even as good as they were, there were still questions like, "Oh, was the rotation good enough? Should they do this? Should they do that? Like, can they maybe add one more guy?" And I think, I mean, obviously we've landed on it looks pretty good. Um, I but I think it's interesting too because like you look at even down the down, down the way, like they tried to make things, they tried to tweak things up. Like easy to forget that Thomas Bryant and Reggie Jackson were were acquired this season. Like, yeah. Um, given what their backup center situation was. And then they've basically just gone to the point of now, it's like, hey, Jeff Green's mobile five. Like that's been the option now. It's like Jeff Green played the five, play with Bruce Brown, play with just switchy and do more because we cannot make this work with having five out there. Um, yep. Because I still like, I have Zeke Najee hopes long-term still, but like it just, it hasn't happened. Um, at least to the level that they wanted to, you know, like to be this level of team, you know, it's hard to just be like, oh, well, we're going to, figure it out but um yeah man it's uh looking at the turnover and the way things have gone has been really interesting yeah you know it, it is really interesting like you know i've seen a couple of people you know ask something like this in the comments are players like Jokic and draymond green predictable or projectable for draft purposes Ooh, or are players that, ch- that change the paradigm just by definition something that can be recognized in hindsight um it's a great question I think that they are I think that we often underrate elite skills. Like Draymond Green at Michigan State. So look, like Draymond Green was like heavy at Michigan State. And this is like both of these guys are like the, you know, shout out Ethan Strauss whatever you think of them, right? Like Ethan Strauss had the idea of fat is potential in disguise and like being a little bit heavy, I think does often become something that, you know, can hide these things. Um, the things that were recognizable about Draymond and Jokic were always the feel. They always had the feel stuff. And both of those guys, I think Jokic might've been the first year I did draft evaluation, like at all. And then Draymond was before I did it. So, like, I can't sit here and, like, you know, be an expert on those guys. But I think that what I often look for is I try to understand who are the guys that genuinely have just, like, truly elite feel. Um, Not just, like, good feel, but, like, is there a chance that this player is just truly special in terms of the way that he sees the game that allows him to be successful? Uh and, you know, both Jokic and Draymond Green, they both like produced at exceptionally high levels. Like even Jokic in that pre-draft year where he was like 18, 19 playing for Mega, he was like not really a starter, but he played, I think it was, you know, like 20 to 22 minutes a night or something. And I think he averaged like 10 or 11 points and like a couple of assists and like five rebounds or something like for that age level, he was like very, very productive. Um, and then he like exploded into being like the MVP of that league the next year. Yeah, I think uh, my answer to this is somewhere in between. Um, like I agree with you in the you got to look for 
Like, I think identifying what is elite and not just what's elite in the moment, but what translates as elite is probably what I think has been the hardest part. But I have had, like, saying some wins sounds like too much. But I think, like, for me, like, I was so in on Herb Jones because I watched him play defense. And I was like, yeah, I did too. there's no way that I can't, like, see this guy being at least the yeah. ninth man with how good that defense is. Like, because I think, like, yeah. his defense at Alabama always gets undersold sometimes. Anytime I see anybody compare – um, a player to Herb Jones. I'm like, please rewatch what he did defensively at Alabama because that was he nuts. was a um, joke. He was so yeah, good on defense. One By the, the way, like sne- sneaky guy in this year's class, not quite as good as Herb Jones, but Omax Prosper is filthy on defense. He's really fun. Oh, that that yeah. Mar- shout out, man. I'm bummed that we're not going to get to watch that Marquette team in fully assembled next year because that was so fun this year. But uh, point being, like like you mentioned, also like, Igadaro Hive assemble. <laughs> Very fun college player that that ends for me. Uh, but like I, I think, uh, like you mentioned, the spotting the elite skill I think is the most important. But I also think like part of it is the hindsight to a degree. Like okay, I think the biggest thing with Draymond is like he's always going to be interlocked with Steph and Clay, and I think part of that is how, what how can you have the foresight before the hindsight? Like can you envision like one of the things that I'm trying to do right now and not saying I'm going to be right or wrong, but like I'm going through and like, you know, really trying to to pinpoint things on, on the women's side and looking at, okay, you know, like Juju Watkins, who is not going to be draft eligible for three or four more years. Like, okay, well, what, what, do, what am I seeing? And is it, who is this kid? You know, there's this girl named Jersey Robinson who play, who, please remember that name. She's going to be unreal um, out of Los Angeles who, was I believe CIF player of the year as a freshman this year. Like she's like looking, how can you look and see what the game is molding towards four or five years from now? How can you merge that with where it is right now in the pros and where it's headed? And how can you kind of blend that together and try and envision it? And part of that, you're not going to be able to do that fully in the moment. I don't think that anybody could have really like nobody had ever played the way that the Warriors had before at the pro level or in any level, really like with that yeah. kind of pace, with that kind of spacing, with, the kind of way that they built it, like there had been like versions of that that built into it. But like to that point, like having it be like, this is what we do. This is our bread and butter. This is how we open everything up. Okay. Well, how do you get to that point where you can see that kind of stuff beforehand? And I think like you can a little bit, you can have inklings and ideas, but I think it's more like, like I almost think of it like kind of like a spider web or like when you look at like the Skyrim tech tree, like, Okay, you have to like in order to other un, like in order to unlock all these other things, you have to like branch out and look you know forward and backward to try and see things. And um, yeah. there's not really a great answer for it, but I think that's kind of where I'm at right now with it. Well, and I think like this is where the future of team building kind of goes. Like every year, it's like cyclical in terms of like what oh like what did the NBA finalists do that we didn't? What did X, Y, and Z do that we didn't? I Look, like drafting Nikola Jokic at 41, 42, whatever he went, that's like not truly attainable, in my opinion, yeah, uh, as no, a sure. goal. But like once you get the star in place, what is attainable is how Denver went about building this roster, I think. Like I think I think front offices will look at the way Denver did this and go, this is attainable. This is something we can do. We can pinpoint the Jamal Murray who can be the best second star. We can pinpoint, you know, the injury risk that was Michael Porter Jr. We can pinpoint um, the perfect like 
crash role-playing big man and a wing big and Aaron Gordon, right? And we can find players that fit all across our board. And I think that what we might see, and this is something I always talk about, yes, before you get the star, I am all for drafting just to find the star. And you have to find the number one option. That is the, you can't win in the NBA without that guy. You can't win in the NBA without the MVP candidate, without the guy who can be a top 10 player in the league, just straight up. But once you get that guy, what you put around him is incredibly fucking important. And it's why I don't really like, for instance, what the way Toronto went about things with, you know, it's roster build in terms of just like having all these like weirdo length guys kind of. And it's why I love what Oklahoma city has done in terms of building around Shea Gilgis Alexander, like Toronto and Oklahoma city are like two different sides of the same coin in terms of like, they draft super long, very big, you know, positional size, you know, uh, guys that have good feel for the game, etc. The thing that Oklahoma City does differently, though, is they draft guys with super high level skill with, you know, guys that are, you know, I'm not saying Toronto doesn't draft guys with great character, but like, you know, they prioritize character at a super high level and they draft guys that will work around their star players. You know, Oklahoma City's build right now is like this is the next in the iteration of the Denver build, in my opinion. This is the next team that's doing this. And Oklahoma City is probably four or five years away from winning a title. But they're the team that's doing this, you know, in in the way that they're doing it well. Um, NBA Rigged, I think, asked a really good question here. Who are the three individuals most responsible for assembling the Denver Nuggets championship squad? Um, Number one is Nikola Jokic, just straight up. Like, I I get it that, like, you're asking about assembled, but, like, none of this happens without Nikola Jokic, right? Oh, definitely not. Yeah. Number two for me is Tim Connolly. Um, And we haven't mentioned the name Tim Connolly a ton on this podcast, but I think he really deserves flowers. He built the majority of this team uh, before moving on to Minnesota because he got, like, an enormous contract offer uh, to run their basketball operations last summer. Shout out to Tim Connolly. I think he absolutely deserves the second most credit. The, the third guy is either Calvin Booth or it's Michael Malone. It's one of the two. Um, I'm willing to listen on either. I, I both certainly played a role. The other guy that played a really important role is a guy that we mentioned earlier. Arturis Karnisivas played a really important role in this in terms of evaluation and finding guys and like his you know relationships overseas and everything played a really p- critical role. But those are like the four or five, I would say, that are like the most important by far. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Um, we already gave Millsap love, so I don't have to say him again, but I, he is the best. Um, what else did I want to say? I did want to backtrack a little bit because I think uh, our guy, S. Fandy, our Barani, asked another really great question. How much of this is also trying to nail moving target? It's it's finding the right fit organizationally plus trying to track bigger trends and hoops. Like Sam said, it feels like luck for a lot of it. I think part of what's so hard in it um, is that I don't like I, in some ways, yes, on the nailing moving target part. But again, I think what gets undersold a lot is what is your organizational mandate and what kind of flexibility do you have within that? 
because I think Huge. part of what's so important for OKC is they have they 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 got the flexibility to do what they wanted to become a team that is going to be a, a perennial contender potentially if things really hit right, and I think it will. But like that's what's so difficult in and again like I think that's part of so much of when I first started this I used to think everything had to be a certain way like there's there's a right or there's a wrong and I think part of what makes it that much more difficult is that's just not true like that there's there's not a right or wrong way to do things or there's no way to it's it's impossible to replicate things also too with just something that is so vastly different all the time um but like I mean just continuing on that um like when you're looking at the Indiana Pacers, let's say, like if you take a team like that and you're talking about, you know, like, oh, well, this team being a contender, being a contender means something entirely different for the Indiana and for the Indiana Pacers than it does for the Oklahoma City Thunder. Like how you're going to get there, how that's possible, what kind of assets you're going to have to be able to do that, what kind of leeway you're going to have to be able to make that happen. Like that's just that that every team is different. So I think exactly like you're mentioning, that's just um, that's what makes it tough. And I think I, I don't know a ton about yeah. Toronto's ownership, but I would imagine that's played a part in it as well. Like, um, like how much has, was Toronto really, not that they should have taken a step back after they won the title, but like, are we like, are I, I don't know. Like that's going to be interesting to see play out over the next year or so with them. Yeah. You know, I, I think Toronto does have, you know, really strong patient, ownership like I, I think that they yeah i'm not real worried about their ownership but i, I will yeah, say no, that I'm like i'm worried about them but it's, yeah you know like denver's ownership deserves an immense amount of credit here like for letting this thing ride a little bit they also like there are there are organizations that would not have paid michael porter like a max to retain him there are organizations that would not have paid aaron gordon that like 22 million dollar extension number after paying three maxes in order to retain Aaron Gordon. And like, look, they've lost some guys along the way. Like no question. Every team has to make financial sacrifices on some level. But I do think it's really important to note, like ownership is a big part of this. And like ownership is really, really, really critical in this case for Denver. They, they you know, I feel like we, when we talk about ownership, we often talk about it like in a meddling manner or in it or in some sort of like, you know concern trolling kind of thing where like will the wrestlers actually pay to keep atlanta together will you know are are the wrestlers too involved in atlanta you know or are you know i should stop saying atlanta because you know that was just like one that came to mind but like um you know certainly matt ishbia is the most recent new owner that came in right and seems to have a real degree of influence the cronkies let these guys go and really just build it and it's huge and they deserve an immense amount of credit. Um, I think that's all I've got on this. I, I will say, like, it, really impressive, really good work uh, by the Denver Nuggets as an organization. That, that's all I've got, though, Mark. Do you have any other yeah, strong takes you have to get off here? Okay. No, I think, uh, yeah, that's it for me. Okay, let's take a quick minute here, and then we're going to talk about the Los Angeles Lakers and where they go from here. Okay, Mark, 
we're on to the Lakers now. The Lakers are in a very interesting space. They have actually like an immense amount of flexibility this summer, which I thought was a really underrated piece of like some of the machinations they made at the deadline. I thought that it would work uh, on the court first and foremost, but I also loved the idea of them being able to get out of this situation if it didn't work. And now they're in like this weird situation where it did work and they also still have the ability to move on and do different things. So let's start with this. Overall, do you believe that the Lakers roster as presently constructed with a full training camp, everything like that, do you think that they can win a title next season uh, with this roster? No. Just point blank here, I would say no. Um, <laughs> like, I caught a little bit of flack for this uh, when I said it um, on Twitter, and I, I mean this in like the the most earnest way possible. Like, LeBron cannot do that anymore. I do not think that we are at the stage of saying LeBron can carry this team and make things happen. And I want to be completely fair and honest and, t- and talking about that. Like, he had forty in the last game. He was. Honestly, incredibly played every minute. Are, yeah, you, this not me. are you Rick Bukering on this no, show? No, no. That is the most offensive <laughs> thing somebody has ever said to me. Um, I know you're completely joking, but point being like, it's just being real and honest. Like this year, whether you want to say that, I mean, injuries certainly played a part. I'm not trying to say otherwise, but I think it was very noticeable. Like this is the first year that I have felt like LeBron is not capable of, to at the very, very highest level of overcoming some of his athletic diminishes. Like when you're talking about winning a title, when you're talking about him carrying a team to win a title, I think if they make like a little bit of a talent upgrade, I think this could be a title team next year, barring injuries. But my point is like, it's this is his 20th year in the league. He is going to be what? He's 39 years old already. And this, again, this is not me trying to be unfair. It's just, Watch how hard it is for him to score 40. He cannot do it every night. Like you cannot, this is not like the 2014, 15, 2015, 16 run where he was legitimately like he played every single minute of every game and was unstoppable. Like it's not the same. And I think it's so tough. Like when, as much as everybody talked about like the, oh, look at the threes he's taking. Like this is so rough. Why is it so rough? Why is he taking all those threes? He cannot get into the paint the same way he used to. He doesn't have the same downhill burst and drive. He is not able to create separation at the elite level he was able to. And that has drastically hurt what he can do offensively. That's not to say that he's not still an amazing player. He was rightfully all-star, rightfully all-NBA. There is a steep drop-off from being a top three, four player in the league to dropping into the top 10 to 15. Like, well, I, and, and I think that where, where I want to pick up from that is – our friend Samson Folk, uh, one of the smartest things, Samson's very fucking smart, first and foremost. But one of the smartest things that he has ever said is oh, every NBA player can put up 20 points in a game at some point. Yeah. What makes you a star is being able to do it consistently night after night after night after night. What makes you a superstar is being able to put up 30 consistently night after night after night. LeBron is capable of reaching those 
incredible, unbelievable heights that we saw in game four. I don't think he can do it anymore every single game in a playoff series with one day in between games. Yeah, I think that that is where the consistency question comes in. LeBron is still one of the 15 best players in the NBA. He's incredible. He's unbelievable. He deserves an immense amount of credit. I thought the way he battled in game four was fucking staggering. Like that guy is an unbelievable legend of basketball. He was throughout the course of this series and frankly, throughout the course of this playoffs, a mortal NBA superstar, not the like unbelievable, incredible superstar that we've seen previously. And, and like the guy who like was almost infallible in many ways. And because of that, and because of that nuance that's necessary, I think it it will be very difficult for this Lakers team without another like star level creator to win a title. They just went to the conference finals. They're incredible. Anthony Davis is unbelievable. He's the best defensive player in the league. And he's like a 22 and 14 best defensive player in the league. I think they need to find a way to make it a little bit easier on offense for LeBron. And that's where the Kyrie Irving idea comes in. Cause as Samuel Hepner asks in the YouTube comments, it's a good name, Sam. How real do you think the Kyrie to LA stuff is? I think that the idea of someone like Kyrie is probably what the Lakers have to explore. The problem, and I think that was the idea of them going out and like prioritizing D'Angelo Russell, which is the D'Angelo isn't quite good enough to play the role, especially with what he takes off the court defensively. Somebody like this, I think is the key I am somewhat skeptical it will be Kyrie because of the mechanics involved in order to acquire Kyrie. Yeah. Do you have thoughts? Um I I'm I just I'm not I, I don't I think it's certainly possible um him being there at all like it doesn't mean anything but it also doesn't mean nothing like um I don't know. Like, I think it's certainly possible. I I love what it could do on the court. Um, I mean, we've seen what that looks like before, but also like, it's again, it's different now, but like, I think when you're talking about what that could be like, yeah, that, I mean, totally, that would be incredible, but exactly like you're saying too. I just don't know how feasible that is. Um, But yeah. So, I'm really, really intrigued in this idea of trying to find that other hub kind of, right? Like who is that other hub? Is there a way to like actually go and acquire that next guy that isn't Kyrie, right? And it's worth kind of breaking into their like cap sheet to discuss that, right? So we have to 
just talk about like who they have under contract, who they have coming back, et cetera, et cetera. And it's worth, it's worth noting as well. Rob Palinka, it seems like has been pretty clear after they lose this series that they want to keep the young pieces and the young core together within this group. So sign for next season, they have LeBron James, Anthony Davis, they have Jared Vanderbilt, and they have Max Christie. They also have Austin Reeves, who has a $2.19 million cap hold that they will undeniably keep on this roster. <clears throat> they have Rui Hachimura, who has an 18.8 cap hold, and he is a restricted free agent. They have Lonnie Walker, who's an unrestricted free agent, and they have D'Angelo Russell, who's an unrestricted free agent. The team also has Malik Beasley, who has a team option for $16.5 million, and they have Mohamed Bamba on a non-guaranteed deal for $10 million. My working theory on this is that they're going to probably try to explore the trade market using the like Beasley and Bomba deals on some level to see who's out there, retain the Austin Reeves and Rui cap holds for 20 million. And if they do that, if they retain their cap holds for 20 million, basically they're at like a one Oh six number in terms, or no, it's like one ten number in terms of like money. And then you have to add in like all of the roster holds as well, which would be, you know, I think like five of them. So they would significantly diminish their cap space if they do that. Like by holding on to Rui's cap hold, it it like really significantly like diminishes their space. So it makes me think that they probably operate if they're going to keep as a younger if they're going to keep their younger pieces like Rui and Austin Reeves they probably operate as an over the cap team and try and acquire the other guy via trade the problem is I can't figure out who the other guy is right now yeah well I have I have ideas but I think part of what's tough too and exactly what you're saying like I think the guy has to come via trade unless it's Kyrie because this is not the free agency market this year to make it happen unless we see some like wild stuff happen with guys turning things down um, but like, I, I will be interested. I don't know anything about Michael Winger. Bradley Beal is possible. I, I feel like this just because of the idea of what if things get blown up in Washington, quote unquote, blown up, whatever that even means. I'm not saying that it's perfect. That's a ton of money to take on. Um, but I do think like, that's the name that you could throw out, but who else is like even really all that available? is what makes it like, ah. Well, what makes it hard is like, you know, the the other name that could reasonably make sense, given that he just signed with Clutch is Fred Van Vliet, right? Um, You could clear out a lot of your cap space for Fred Van Vliet and try and make that work. Or you could try and sign and trade for Fred Van Vliet. The problem is that like, what are the Raptors getting here that makes them want to do that? Here's D'Angelo it, it, Russell in a smile. Like, yeah, I, that's, yeah. On like a sign and trade for multiple yeah. years because sign and trade deals have to be for multiple years. Like that doesn't really line up for me. Um, 
are they going to take like Malik Beasley's, you know, team option and Mo Bamba's, you know, deal that gets guaranteed for cap purposes? Probably not. Right. Like that, that feels like a non starter to me. Uh, Max Christie, I think like is genuinely interesting to be honest. Like uh, if I was like another team, I would want to acquire Max Christie. Um, but like the team doesn't really have like, uh, I mean, they have a couple of picks that they can trade too. like, is there a world where like uh, they look at this and go, could we move a pick? Maybe I think they have a couple of picks they can trade. Right. Might only be uh, one. Yeah, it's not a lot. Yeah, I'll look this up while we're talking. But like, I think you can't rule out a Fred VanVleet kind of deal. Well, well, what they could do is they could move eighteen. Actually, now that I think about it, is is there a war world where you can do like Fred Van, eighteen, whoever they take at eighteen, you know, Max Christie. You know, and the Beasley and Bomba deals for Fred Van Vliet. Mm. That's tough. Um, I would not be very interested in that if I'm Toronto. Like, granted, like, it's it's a sign and trade, so it's not the... Yeah, like, what if you're going to lose him for nothing because yeah. he's going to go to San Antonio because San Antonio wants a new point guard for the Wemby era or something like... Like, I'm just, like, spitballing. I'm not saying that's a rumor. I'm just saying, like in terms of trying to come up with options. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, I mean, I think it's it's feasible. But also, like, I I like Fred a lot. How do you think that that moves the needle? Like, uh, in, like to, to where you're thinking? Like, I, I think it, it certainly moves the needle. Like, I don't mean to be... He's better than unfair. D'Angelo, for oh, sure. Well, yeah, like, that goes yeah. without saying. I think that, I mean, that inc- improves their defense. They already had a good defense, but I think a lot of it was AD covering up some of the issues they dealt with at stopping things on the perimeter, which was an issue for them throughout the playoffs. Um, I think it would do good things for them, but I think, I mean, like, I I just, yeah, I I think it would help. It would definitely be good. I'm probably overthinking it to a degree, but yeah. You probably don't do that same deal if you're Dallas, right? Uh... Because I feel like Kyrie has more limited options. And if you don't facilitate a deal with LA for Kyrie, you then force the Lakers into a spot where they can't retain Rui and Austin Reeves if they want to sign Kyrie. Or they can't retain Rui. They can retain Austin Reeves. Um, In order to – they have to sign him via cap space then. And they also can't pay Kyrie like a full max, whereas – Dallas can pay him a full max if they want to retain him. So if you're them, like you probably play a game of chicken, right? Where like you basically say, yeah, if you want to go sign with the Lakers for $15 million less per year, like be our guest, right? Yeah. I th- I mean, like I exactly. I mean, if I'm the, if I'm the Mavs, I'm not playing ball at all with them. Like, yeah. I, this is to me like they. I, I don't want to like be hyperbolic, but like they cannot mess around with 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 this as the Mavs this offseason. Like this is a really important offseason for them. Like every offseason is important. Don't get me wrong, but like cannot mess this one up. Um, yeah, with where they're at. Yeah, no, I agree. So the the other part about like 
getting Kyrie or Fred VanVleet via sign and trade is it like hard caps you at a certain point, which also limits your flexibility in terms of bringing Rui back as well. Um, you can't overpay him. Reeves is going to make, you know, like $11 million next year. So like his number isn't like particularly onerous on their cap sheet. So like they can figure that out. Um, and we'll talk about Austin Reeves' contract in a second. You said you had a couple other lead guard options for the Lakers though, if they decide to like go out and acquire like the next guy. After thinking through it, that's probably it. Um, because like I went and I was going back through something like, ah, oh, there's really not all that much to to be super excited about here. Yeah, it, it's it, it's, it's definitely ch- it's definitely hard to find like the right guys. I mean, Bradley Beal is like somewhat interesting. Bradley Beal is making forty six point seven million dollars. It's such uh, a jarring, like, and I think Brad is. A fantastic player when he's healthy and i i'm not going to say underrated because part of it is that's just the situation but like um that's a looking at that number regardless of talent is like wowza well my thing is that i think the wizards will get a better offer than what i just oh put yeah yeah i would so, agree with that yeah um as fondyr asks what about tamar this is the other guy this no. was the next guy i was going to bring up um I think yes, if you can swing this, really? but I am also like the biggest DeMar DeRozan. Well, I love DeMar in the world. I, I think that he would be really fun as like a secondary shot creator and somebody who can, who can create, you know, really create offense for you. But I just, uh, like, I mean, it's an upgrade, uh, but it just, I would, does that make things easier for LeBron is kind of where I would come down to. Like, I don't know if it does for me. Um, I think I think it does because Demar can just like create shots at will, and having that other guy that can create shots at will is like super valuable to me. Um, What I will say is, the Bulls like I feel like they kind of have to win this year, and I I don't know if trading Demar for like Max Christie and a and like the number eighteen overall pick helps them in that pursuit. Yeah. So like, if I'm that front office and like I'm a little bit worried, I probably don't do that um daniel garrett brings up trey young i don't understand this at all if they really wanted to move trey young there is no circumstance where a team doesn't outbid the lakers like genuinely there's zero circumstance that another team doesn't just like come way over the top and like drastically trump what los angeles can offer yeah no i'd agree with that and i was in, in retrospect i'm definitely overthinking with DeMar. i mean demar is incredible he would definitely help them i just i think thinking from a playoff setting i would have some questions but i mean yeah especially when you're looking at the regular season that would be and what you're talking about with being able to stagger lineups and do some things yeah that yeah i'm also trying to just like find you know like other guards like i don't think you can trust chris paul with this group um that just like doesn't seem feasible to me given that your concerns are about like guys staying healthy um I don't think this is the kind of move where Portland would move Anthony Simons for. I think they would be looking for more like immediate help. Um, I mean, like Terry Rozier is constantly available. It feels like, but I think, well, that's more like having a guy who can like run off screens and and do like, rather than actually like creating anything. And it's like, we have Terry Rozier at home with Malik Beasley and he didn't play for us in the playoffs because we didn't trust him on defense. Um, That's like a, that's like a backup, like, Back. That's that's like a backup to the backup option to me. Yeah. Um, 
You know what I'm really excited about this offseason? I believe it's this offseason. Let me – I'm clicking to make sure that I have this right. Let me continue filibustering until I'm positive. Blah, blah, blah. blah. Say something because I'm losing words. Yeah, I'm trying to find the other guys that I think like you can reasonably make a case ah, for the Lakers like targeting, but continue. Here, I have it. Uh, my favorite, and this was – I would have said this before the playoffs because I've just long been – big fan of his I don't think that the heat let him go Gabe Vincent is going to be a starting point guard in the NBA I think Gabe Vincent is legit um like again that's not like somebody who is saving your franchise and becoming like your your third star or something but like that's somebody who I look at automatically when I'm talking about like somebody who I do think swings something in the offseason I think again I think the heat are going to resign him um but he is one of the more fascinating free agents this season that I'm I'm very excited about. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Gabe Vincent's super fucking interesting. Um, you know, you see Santa Barbara kid, like maybe, but I don't. I, I I don't know if that moves the needle enough for LeBron though. At this point, like it, it's actually hard to pinpoint who the guy is for them on, on the star market. Like to me, like there just aren't really any like perfect you know, all-star caliber options like Oklahoma city is not moving Shea Gilgis Alexander to them. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, the interesting one is like the Clippers have like a couple of these guys that like could be interesting, but like, are they really, are the Clippers going to help the Lakers like be good again? I'm pretty skeptical. I mean, like, I guess like Damian Lillard's a name, but there's no way that the Lakers don't get outbid in a Damian Lillard potential deal. Um, it's hard to find like the right guy, which is why I think the Fred Van Vliet name like kind of makes the most sense to me. Um, If you're looking for a upgrade on D'Angelo Russell, who can also play with Austin Reeves that also allows you to retain Rui. Yeah. They're just, they're not names. (laughs) Yeah, like it's it's a little bit hard. Um, and like that's that's by the way, like if they could get 18 and Max Christie for Fred Van Vliet, like I think that's kind of a win for Toronto if Fred Van Vliet like tells them he's not coming back in free agency, right? Yeah. So, um, but you never know. Uh, the next part of this is the Austin Reeves portion of the show. Uh, give me a number for Austin Reeves that you think he gets. Oh, uh, it's going to be above the MLE. I think like no um, question. Yeah. yeah. I think it's probably 15 to 18 a year range is where I would be at right now. Um, I could see him getting more. I probably wouldn't want to pay him more yet. Um, I don't know where you're at with that, but that's, that's the number that's kind of come to mind for me uh, over the last week or so. Um, I think I've seen some people say like, you know, maybe uh, Austin can become that, that third guy. And some, I'm probably not there. I like him. I think he's really good, but I think it would take a lot for him to hit that next year. Not that it can't happen, but I think that's part of why I'd be very much in the let's give him a really good guaranteed contract right now, but not not star level for me. So his max is, you know, like I think it's like 99, 102, something like that. We're still waiting for like what the cap's going to come in at. So we don't have like an exact number on this. Um four years and then it'll be like spike years in years three and four kind of similarly to like the Tyler Johnson structure a few years ago. Mm-hmm. 
the thing that the Lakers really have to kind of recognize here is that the teams that are out there that have cap space should all be prioritizing Austin Reeves. Like the Utah Jazz can like get to real cap space. Like that's a fair point. I didn't think about the Jazz should try and get Austin Reeves. The Houston Rockets like have an immense amount of cap space. They should be like all in on trying to get Austin Reeves, I think, because he is like the perfect complementary guard for like Jalen Green to play off of, I think. Um it's just that he's kind of the perfect complementary, like third, fourth, fifth starter, whatever you want to call him. And he has a little bit of upside beyond that. Like, I think he can be like, I don't want to like pigeonhole him into that. He just averaged, I mean, what was he? He was like 15, five and four or whatever in a conference finals playoff run. Right. Like that's, it's ridiculous. Like he, he went Austin Reeves numbers in the playoffs, 17 points, 4.4 rebounds, 4.6 assists versus only 1.6 turnovers. So like a three to one assist to turnover ratio, 46% from the field, 44% from the three, 90% from the line. Austin Reeves is going to make so much money. The number is over 20, I think per year on average. Uh, It's just how much. And I kind of think that because like if you're the Spurs and you just got Wemby, this is like a perfect complimentary two guard, right? Yeah, it's not bad. Um, I think what's, I mean, not that and he's young. Can... He's like 25. That's the thing. Like he can grow with your younger core, which is what all of these teams that have cap space have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, t- uh, it's tough. I agree. It's just like Spurs are in a weird place because they have like so many guards, two guards, wings that they're trying to develop. So not that you wouldn't add an extra one on top of that who already has kind of proven themselves. But um, yeah, no, I totally see that. Yeah. Like he's getting at least 480. If he got the full boat, like the 499 to 102. I would be surprised at the number like off the jump, but I wouldn't be like totally stunned. The only reason I'm not saying that, like, I think Austin Reeves is like a $25 million a year player. I I think he has potential to reach that at some point. I I don't know if he's that right now necessarily. Yeah. No, I agree. It's just that the market dynamics in this circumstance say that somebody is going to pay him an immense amount of money. And the Lakers can so like NBA rigged says like Reeves will take a pay cut with the Lakers. They they can't really even re- offer a pay cut. Like they they can't get a number that's close enough. The most they can offer him is like four years, fifty five million. That's too far from like what we're talking about in terms of like four eighty, four ninety. I just said like I wouldn't be surprised if you got the full boat. So like. Because they don't have the ability to offer a middle ground, I actually don't think this is a circumstance where, like, there's a pay cut even on the table for Reeves. So, Lakers fans, like, need to be ready. Like, this is this is going to be expensive. This is going to be a lot for Austin Reeves here. Yeah. 
No, I guess, yeah, it's probably going to get a little bit nasty, especially like like we mentioned earlier, the free agency market is not exactly, uh, there's a lot of good upper tier role players, but it's not star guys. So I do think we're going to see some, some money getting thrown around quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it I think like 80, 80 minimum, to be honest, mm-hmm. like I, I would be stunned if it's anything under 80, um, that, that anything under 80, I think would surprise me more than Reeves getting the full max at this that he is capable of getting, which is like four ninety nine or four one oh two. Which is insane. I'm aware that that's like insane to say, but purely based off of the market dynamics, not based off of like reporting from what I've been told Houston's gonna offer or what San Antonio could offer or what you know, Utah or Detroit or whoever, all the teams that have cap space. I'm not saying like reporting on this or anything. I'm just saying purely the market dynamics say that he's going to get an immense amount of money this summer. Yeah. Um, the more interesting one to me is Rui. Like, what do you do with him? I am not in the pay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like I, he did some really nice things in the playoffs and I think he had some good moments with the team. I am still not as high on what consensus seems to be with him. Like I probably am not like if, if you really feel good about him and want to give him the MLE. Cool. I, that's like poke me with a stick to want to do that. Like I, I think like maybe, but I just think like when I'm thinking about how much money I'd be spending and I, I hate thinking about it like that, but like, I, there are just players on the open market that I would probably be more interested in right now. Um, okay, hear, hear me out on this. This is going to oh sound boy. like stupid okay. off the cuff. What if you did essentially like a three-year, $60 million contract for Rui with no. a team option? Stop, <laughs> no. wait. With a team option in year three, so you pay him like a lot of money to start. <sighs> The second year is basically expiring. It allows you to retain Rui for this year if you want to keep him. And like money is money, you know, it's ownership, it's whatever. And then that's an expiring contract that gives you more flexibility next summer because they, the thing that the Lakers are missing right now is they don't really have like an in between contract to be able to fil- facilitate trades if they need to like make moves next summer. What if you basically overpaid for three years? had the team option in the last year, essentially making next year an expiring contract year and then allowed him to stay on the team. And then you, if he like plays well and plays up to that contract, great, whatever you keep him. but it gives you flexibility long-term to be able to continue building the roster. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, I get what you're saying. I'm probably being a little bit too harsh um, in all honesty, but I just like I the idea of playing paying Rui that much is a lot for me. Um, I can't really get there. Um, I think it's more than what he's worth. I, I'm I'm not denying that. I, I think yeah. that if I was if I was pinpointing a number, I would say like honestly, I probably would give him more than the MLE after the way he played in the playoffs. Um, I think that like you know f- four years, fifty million is probably about you know four years. N- maybe like 60 million 
is not like totally unfair for him. Yeah, no, that's I, not terrible. I think like I, I just wouldn't want to pay it for four years is my thing. Like I would want to go shorter term. And I think that if you overpay for the shorter term, there's actually like some real flexibility that doing so and structuring it properly like allows you. Yeah. I think that's I I, I get what you're saying. You're just disgusted right now. <laughs> I'm not disgusted. I've disgusted I like, Mark Schindler. I feel like I've <laughs> Brew is just a really hard player for me. I've wanted to have things click for him for years. I still am just not optimistic that this was things clicking for him because I think there have been good stretches from him before. Um, I really hope it works out. I would not be the team that's going to pay him fifteen to eighteen million dollars. Like I, I'm just not super comfortable <laughs> doing that. Like I, I don't know. I, I don't. I would rather find a way to pay Cam Johnson. That is where I'm at. I would, I would chill out. Maybe that's that's not like a functional. Yeah, thing I know that that's you can not do. a functional thing that I can do. But like, yeah, it's. Uh, yeah, it's not. I get what you're saying. Yeah. So look, this is how I'd approach the off season. Like I'd be trying to like. I'd try and operate over the cap. I would try and retain Rui and Austin Reeves. If somebody wants D'Angelo Russell and like a sign and trade of some sort, I will help. I, I will be more than happy to help you do that. Uh, that sounds great. Uh, I will retain Austin Reeves. I will retain Rui on like a weird contract like that and try and explore adding like another additional guard. Mm-hmm. And obviously this can all change. Like this can all if Rui gets like an enormous offer sheet from somebody, like if he gets like a 480 offer sheet or something, then you just, you know, I think then you start negotiating like a sign and trade or something like that. Uh, Maybe the Raptors would really like Rui. Maybe like that gives you some optionality on who you can acquire from the Raptors. Uh, You know, in terms of like some of those clutch guys, like, I, I don't know. Like, I think that there's, there are a number of things that could happen there in like sign and trade scenarios. It's just like, I think it's going to be a little bit harder um, than people think for the Lakers to do anything other than like retain this roster and then like try and like execute sign and trade capabilities basically. Mm -hmm. No, that's fair. You know what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. Celtics heat. Do you have any quick thoughts? Uh, I, it was good to see this Celtics put together a solid basketball game last night. I think that's my main takeaway after, no, I mean, point blank. Like, I think it's, it's been very rough to watch them in in this series. Um, I think just to make it more positive, like I genuinely just, I am so amazed with Jimmy Butler, man. Like he didn't even like go crazy the other night. Like, obviously, like, not to take away, like, just to make this all about the Heat after the Celtics won the other night, but, like, um, he's unreal. Like, my my dad doesn't really watch that much basketball. Like, he'll watch, like, one game a week with me or something like that. And uh, I'll never forget, I was sitting and watching the game against the Bucks, where he had, like, 30 points in the second half, just went absolutely nuclear, and they torched the Bucks down the stretch. And my dad, like – Turn looked at me he was like, you know, I think the Heat might be – I mean, not the Heat. I think, like, Jimmy Butler might be, like, one of the best playoff players I've ever seen. I was like, yeah, you know, you're not wrong. <laughs> and it's just watching – like, I don't know how to explain it to people. Like, it's just – he's he is an aggressive player by nature already, and what he does is a 
as an attacker, but like what he does ramping up in the postseason to hit that extra note is just mind boggling. Um, I still like, I, I don't mean to be unfair. I think this is done in five. still. I'm very much of the opinion that the heat are winning this next game. Um, with the Celtics, my biggest issue has been just, I mean, their, their defense has been kind of a mess for me. It was better in this last game to be fair, but like, I think everybody keeps pointing out the offense and that's totally fair. I get it. Um, my biggest thing just from, from this year, to last year, like Al Horford's drop off on that, on that end has really hurt them. And I love Al, like Al, I'm going to cry when the dude retires, but he is not the super switchable big that he could be at times last year. I think he can do it for stretches, but he can't do it as much as they've needed him to. Robert Williams III, they just haven't really quite been able to get back to what they had with him last year on either end of the court. That's really hurt them. Um, and I, I think, like, overall, they're, like – I mean, watching Duncan Robinson, like, just basically dribble drive, like, it wasn't – like. He was like straight up just denying screens and attacking the defense. And part of that was, uh, I mean, that they were just playing with an insane level of confidence in that game. Um, I just don't think that the Celtics have the level of versatility that they need to win this series. I do think like a lot of it goes on to coaching, but I think so much has been made of like, this is the same team as last year, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, it's not like even like Grant Williams is taking a step back from where he was at last year. Um, it's in. It's just in a weird spot for me. Like I think that it's still a very good team, and I think too much has been made of Celtics suck rather than the Heat have been just playing incredibly well. Like they finally found all these gears and clicked right, and that's just such a hard team to play against. Um, I think last thing I'd say too. This has been a really rough series for Malcolm Brogdon, and I think they needed him to be a lot better than this. He was really yeah. solid in games one and two. But I think defensively, he's been a real struggle. Like, um, for like, what one of the hardest parts about playing the Heat, and part of the reason why I, I, I think I will pick the Nuggets to win the finals against them. But I think I'm very open to the idea of Miami winning. If you do not have like almost every player on the court capable of navigating a screen, you're gonna get this. You're gonna struggle so much because like their stuff is rarely built out of we have a guy who is getting into the paint just at will. It's more, okay, how can we get you moving side to side and get you tripping up over yourself? Because that's how we're getting downhill and that's how we're opening stuff up. And I think Malcolm has really struggled with his screen navigation. They've targeted him a ton with, yeah. with, with off ball stuff. I mean, it's been everybody, him and Jalen has been an absolute mess. And I think that's where you just see some of the difficulties of being a team that doesn't, that, that, that relies on switching as much. Um, and again, like I think last year's team would handle this a lot better as we saw them do in the playoffs, but, um, it's just a different year and it's a, a slightly different team. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Are you optim? Are you more optimistic about the Celtics than I am? So like, no, but <laughs> maybe, maybe more optimistic than you. I, I wouldn't say I'm optimistic, but like. I think it's just really fucking hard to roll off three straight or four straight games against this Miami team. I think they're awesome. I think they're like super, super smart and super unselfish. And it's going to, it's just really hard for me to imagine the Celtics getting like three straight games now moving forward of like super efficient offense um, against this team. No is, 
the, more optimistic than you, but like, I think the heat went in five or six, probably, I think six, I would say six, the heat went yeah. in six is where I'm at. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's where I, I think Boston wins at home here and then Miami wins in six, maybe, uh, Boston just, is, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. 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 No, go ahead. No, I just wanted to say one thing. Um, and this goes for this goes for the Celtics. This goes for the Lakers. This goes for any team that's lost. I and especially I, I read an article today, um, basically calling out Joel Embiid from a very notable publication, calling out Joel Embiid for a lack of mental toughness. And like, I just really struggle with that from a from a a, a multitude of angles. Um, primarily, like. One of the things that I look at so often, okay, if you're saying this team or this player is lacking in mental toughness, A, what do you mean by that? B, can you even point out what's going wrong on the court? C, I just think that there's so much of a – and I know we've just sat here for like the last two hours analyzing and talking about things, but I think you and I do it in a very fair and nuanced way. That's why I like doing this with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like – one of my biggest issues with where sports media is at right now is that so much of it is let's just throw out analysis instead of asking questions. And I think so much of this, like there has to be like a point brought in between of um, trying to understand where people are at and where like, we're not going to, I can't understand where, you know, Joel Embiid's entire life or something like that. And not that he wants me to, but like point being like, there has to be like more of a, instead of just like throwing out these takes and shit, like an actual trying to understand where somebody's coming from and where they're at. Like, I don't know if this is making any sense, but um, I just like get really frustrated with seeing that stuff. Because I think if you look at Joel knowing like he was playing through a pretty banged up knee, most of that series, did he have a good series? No. I think going out and saying that that was a lack of mental toughness is weak, incredibly. Um, And same thing with, I'm seeing that with the Celtics a ton too. Like, this team really frustrates me. Like, yes, they can be very difficult to watch, but um, I just I, I really struggle with so much of the stuff being like, oh, well, this team is doing things wrong. They're 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 bad. They're this, and I think like, yeah, there's room to be critical and be honest, but also like, the Heat are just playing incredibly fucking good basketball. They've been doing it for a month and a half now. I don't know, man. Like, sorry, I just needed to get that off my chest because it's been bothering me the last couple of days. Yeah, so like this this is the stuff that annoys me too. I don't love it. I think it's really stupid to speak in those manners. I, I think there are teams that sometimes that is true. But yeah, like I'm and I'm not trying to it take feels, it too far and say that there isn't sometimes that aspect, but I think most of the time the way that it gets brought up is just horseshit. Yeah, I agree. Like uh, if you're gonna do it, like do it with like reporting, uh do it with uh, actual like semblance of real real context to it i just don't i i don't yeah i'm I'm not that kind of person and then like meanwhile like we're, we're fully entering silly season because i just saw that um and i actually i really quite like nick right i think nick gets like a bad rap a lot of the time because he's on tv and yelling and has to talk for three hours on tv every day and also has a podcast and like that's you're gonna give bad takes trust me on this if that's the case 
Nick also popped up a LeBron James for Jordan Poole, oh, Jonathan Kaminga, oh. and Moses Moody thing. Yeah, <laughs> I saw that. It was a uh, it was something. What? No. And like <laughs> this is like this is a this is a classic Kevin O'Connor thing. Kevin wrote this like hypothetical earlier this week in the Ringer. Um, why do the Lakers do that? Oh, they wouldn't. there's no reason for them to. Like, not at all. My my brain is hurting. Why? Why did I'm all for it? Like, I'm here for it. Let's let's get those. Let's have some fun content. I just want to be clear. Like, why in the world would the Lakers do that? Yeah, the, the the Warriors are writing the check now if they can make that happen. Like, that's he, he's being sent to the league office automatically. He just signed, like, the, genuinely, like, LeBron does not, like, really have power in this circumstance, weirdly. Like, he does. Like, he could say he's going to retire, I guess. But, like, if he's retiring, then you're rebuilding anyway and like you're the lakers and you're just going to try and like then you move anthony davis you get all the pick capital you need like all that stuff like i just i'm like i'm so confused on that i'm so so confused on that piece of it um i mean like if you're the lakers like why are you catering to like his wants and needs there I'm I'm just I'm I'm very I'm so confused by that. Um okay, I wanted to talk a little bit about the draft as well. Uh Mark did not have any strong takes. So I, I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about a little bit about a, a couple of things. So I, I've seen like recently so like Adam Finkelstein wrote a thing over at CBS basically like calling out like how when you actually talk to NBA teams, the difference between Amin and Asar Thompson is actually uh, Mars Blackman asking. So like, why is there suddenly a narrative change in people liking Asar more than a man? Um, and Adam, I think like did a really good job of writing this. Like when you talk to NBA teams, they see them as very close. Like they, they do genuinely see them as like six of one half dozen of another, depending on what you want, depending on like what you're looking for, depending on like what you value in prospects, a men's footwork, his polish, his uh, shooting potential is just a little bit higher. Also his defensive fundamentals are a little bit higher. Uh, frankly, like a is a better player than a men Thompson right now. Would you agree with that, Mark? Yeah. 100%. And I think, like a, y- yeah, he no, is. Yeah, no, like he is. Go go ahead. What were you going to say? Yeah, I think like he's a he's a better player. Um I think that he brings more stuff that you can envision in like a connective role and becoming like just a really quality player who can make the right play and and do some potential potentially more stuff with the ball in his hands as he develops out. Um but I do think it's just like some of the stuff with Amen has been like kind of ridiculous, which I think that's what you're getting at. Like there are people mocking him like outside the lottery or like, you know, in, in the tens and Wait, like what? Oh yeah. Nobody's doing that. that. Not right. like reasonable people, but I mean, granted, like there are yeah. people who think that they're reasonable doing it, but uh, like, I don't know. Like, I'm, I mean, I'm seeing people like, like there are very fair um critiques of like his shot. I get that. 
But I also struggle with the way some people talk about OTE, to be honest. Like, it's – is it – like, I, I think OTE is a different viewing experience for sure, but I still think it's a really great way to evaluate talent. It's just different. Like, you and I have talked about difference in, in viewing environments and stuff before, and I think um, it's – again, it's different. But, but sorry, I didn't mean to hijack this. Go ahead. No, 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 I don't really have a problem with it. Um, it's just weird to me that people are doing this now, I guess. Like, why are why are you making this shift now? Because um, you're not watching. <laughs> Sorry, but like... Like, we have a lot of tape on a man and a Sar Thompson. Like... And I'm all for like going through doing deep dives after the season, like understanding it. I, I do it like all the time. Like I just did it with like Adama Sonogo, right? Like I finally did this Sonogo deep dive and I was like, you know what? Like I probably would like take this guy like in the top 50. He's like a borderline guaranteed two-way guy for me. Like I'm, I'm pretty in. Like His I'm touch intrigued is nutty. by him. Yeah. His touch is insane. I think he's a better defender than what people think, etc. But like we've seen a lot of a men in a Sar Thompson at this point. And I don't understand why now with a lot of it, I guess is my point. Like I, again, I think Asar is a better player than Amen Thompson as of this moment. The thing is that if you're buying into Amen Thompson at all, and you have at any point, you're buying into the idea of him being like this incredible nuclear athlete that like is genuinely a top 1% of the NBA athlete. Right. And can just make things happen in transition, can make things happen and get better defensive fundamentals and like everything like that. Right. Here's the other thing. Like Asar isn't that much better of a shooter. <laughs> like I yeah. get that there are flashes here. I get that. Like we've seen some real like growth from him in a way that we haven't necessarily seen from a man at this point yet. Is it genuinely just because we, like you said, like we haven't seen them in a while and like people are like overthinking this a little bit? Like, what are. Yeah, I mean, I think it's that. Um, like, and I'm not trying to be unfair and overly critical, but I, like, I just, like, we know what the concerns are with the shooting and stuff. Um, but I think it's it, one of the things that I just struggle with every year. I feel like it, 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 there's just like no accounting for what past guys look like. Like, I, and to be fair, like, LaMelo's shot looked a million times better than, than where the Thompsons are at right now. But I think there were yep. massive concerns about him. Like, and I think a lot of, to be fair, a lot of the concerns over the middle were kind of a crock of shit as far as I'm concerned. So it was the same thing. Like, Oh, he's playing in this league. Like, blah, 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 this league sucks. Like, how can we possibly evaluate this? Like, okay, how, how dare you people just watch the basketball and pull your head out of your ass, please. I'm sorry. But like, if you really are, if you actually think that you're a scout then you're just going to watch the fucking basketball, um, respectfully. Uh, but like, I think like it's just people are just trying to nitpick things way to death in a way that's not necessary. Um, like because I think to me it's okay. Yes, we know the shot needs to improve. Have you ever seen anybody with that kind of like flexibility and fluidity as a ball handler before? Like in that kind of package? Because it's like that's that's the stuff I look at. I'm just like. And with that level of explosiveness, like, it, yeah, it's like, it's not just like I can get control. in there. It's like, it's everything. Yeah. And like, okay, that's why he's up there. That's why I look at him ahead of a sword, because like, that's like, that's the stuff that I lose 45 games or more for 
because like, shit, maybe we get that thing that unlocks this other thing for us if we can develop it. And that's the point. Like that's you draft in the top 10 so that you can develop guys to become these players so that you don't have to draft in the top 10 anymore. Like, I, I don't know. Like it's just that it's, it has been aggravating. So I'm there with you. I'm just confused on the why now. Like, why Why is this narrative shift happening now? As far as I know, the people that have that are doing this have not seen a man in a sore, like, in a workout, right? And they're probably just doing it based off of, like, the little clips that are coming out and things like that. So wh- why now? Like, the, the OTE season ended months ago, right? Um, what... I'd be genuinely curious, like what what is making this shift happen? I'm I'm just like a little bit confused. Again, I do think that I want to be very clear about this. Like I said at the top, with like what Finkelstein wrote, I think Adam's 100 percent right about this. It has been much, much, much closer for NBA teams throughout the year than what like the consensus is of a Men Thompson over a Soar. Um. Teams think they're very close. I have had a men over a sore because I think a men is like, you know, a top 1% athlete. I think a sore is like a top 6% athlete or 7% athlete in the NBA. Mm -hmm. And like, I would rather take the flyer on like the top 1%, right? But I've been there the whole year. Like I, I, I've said that like a men, like a sore is more polished and like, frankly, a better basketball player right now than a man. You're not, I I just don't know why now. I don't know why now is the thing. Yeah, no, I agree with that. That's, that's why I'm like a little bit confused about this whole thing. Uh, Okay. So, and I'm still a man, like a man will be like the number four player on my board. I think I have a sore at six or seven right now. I really like a sore. I think he's absolutely tremendous. Um, very real potential all-star upside. I think I would have him at number six personally right mm-hmm. now. Um, but, uh, you know, the only reason I have a guy between them is that Cam Whitmore is also like a top 2% athlete uh, in, you know, as a draft prospect. Uh, and like we'll enter the NBA as like a top 2% athlete and also has like this intersection of strength and explosiveness. that's like very real. So four to six is like all kind of a tier for me, four to five, four to six. Um, the second thing I want to bring up is a, how much Omax Prosper have you watched? Cause this is why I wore the Marquette hoodie today. Uh, I have not watched anything since the season. So I probably watched 10 or 11 games of him. Okay, so I want to run a crazy hot take by you. My take is that Omax is basically DeAndre Hunter, but without the mid-range game that like DeAndre sort of has, but you don't actually kind of want him to use it that often. Period. Thoughts. Uh, oh, he's not DeAndre Hunter. No, like I, I, I get what you're saying. Um, interesting. Um, I'm trying to. Do you feel better about his shot than than uh than you did about DeAndre? 
I think that they're both like questionable shooters. Yeah, I think they were both true. questionable shooters entering, entering the draft. I mean, like guys I, that guys that long term would probably shoot, but like w- would take some time. I think I like. Um, I mean, maybe I'm probably too sour now after just watching him for the last couple of years. But I like what Omax could be as a defender more than than DeAndre. But that's mainly because DeAndre has been pretty average as a defender in the NBA. But I, I think Omax could be better yeah. than that. Um, like I think. The biggest thing for me with Omax, like he's really strong. Like that, I think that's been for me the biggest issue I've had with DeAndre is like I thought he was gonna. Well, I didn't even really watch. That was like pre me, but like going back and watch stuff, I thought DeAndre looked a lot stronger at Virginia than he's played in the NBA for the most part. Um, mm-hmm. Like I don't like that functional strength has never quite been there. Um, Omax has like just a much lower base, and I think that his functional strength in general is a lot better for me. So I I kind of. I kind of see it. I still think that the offense is just there's like some good stuff with the drives. Um but I I don't I don't know. I don't I don't hate it. Um or is this your way of saying that you you think he's a first rounder? I think Omax is a first rounder. I do. Yeah. Yeah. I don't mind that. I can get with that. Yeah. I, I have Omax at like twenty five or so right now. Like I do think that like taking away the mid range potential is like a real issue. Um, he is like Omax is a much more robotic, like they're both very robotic. Like I, I had an NBA scout text me, um, last night that Omax is the Jar Jar Binks of the big East. He's off balance, but just seems to get stuff done. Yeah. <laughs> Say about the entire Marquette team. Um, like, like. Well, I mean, it is worth noting too, just the trajectory that he's been on. Like, he was really, he was somebody who, like, um, I didn't watch, I probably watched like three or four of his Marquette games, not Marquette, three or four of his Clemson games, but he was somebody who, like, just like with Bart queries and stuff, popped pretty instantaneously as a freshman. Yeah. And, like, you could tell as soon as he got to Marquette, like, oh, hey, he's figuring some stuff out. And with Justin Lewis moving on, um, like, he got a bigger role and you could see more with him. And, yeah, I mean, I see it. I think that that's like, he's one of those guys who I think like a very good idea of when you're talking about sort of a late riser and thinking about what their trajectory has been, how they can be developing, how they've looked in combine settings and stuff. Um, I, I see that. Yeah. I'm very curious. Uh, I, I really like Omax. I think he is a very real potential like NBA, you know, very good rotation player. These guys that are six foot eight with like a seven foot one wingspan who can actually defend one through four, they are really fucking hard to find. Like really, really hard to find, especially when they have shooting potential. Like this is a first rounder to me, I think. Uh, I have a lot of questions on like his processing ability and his feels passer and like a playmaker and stuff. But I'll take the flyer on him over like Brandon Pajemski, for instance. Uh, I keep using Brandon Pajemski as like an example. I'm sorry. I'll stop bringing him up on the show. But like, like to me, like six foot eight defensive stud is like that can shoot is a lot more valuable than like the Pajemski archetype, basically. No, I got you. I'm not, I I hear what you're saying for sure. Yeah. Um, 
last thing I wanted to bring up is the Washington Wizards finally have a general manager. It is no longer JT3. Uh, it is now Michael Winger, who's been hired as the president of Monumental Basketball, which is like the holding corporation that owns the Wizards or whatever. Uh, Scow's Roar asks... Do you guys think the Wizards GM hire signals they might be moving away from the middle ground and actually tanking or rebuilding? Uh, does this affect what the Wizards do in the draft? M- my answer is probably not, but I'd be yeah. interested to hear yours. I would say probably not as well. Until Ted Leonsis sells the team, I have no confidence that they're going to do anything short of try and be quote-unquote competitive in in that given year. Um, so. Yeah. Yeah, like I I don't know about like until he sells the team. I just think that like it's, it's unless not he a, has like a, an act of God changes his ways of viewing basketball, you know. But um, yeah, yeah, like to me, it's like if he he needs it's a Ted decision. It's not a like president of basketball ops decision. Yeah, and he might make a change at some point. And he might feel differently at some point, but that that's what it would be. I think it'd be that more than uh, this specific GM hire. Maybe that's a part of this GM hire is that, but like at the end of the day, to me, it's a Leonsis decision uh, to move these guys. And I don't think that this specific hire versus another specific hire um, would be the adjustment there. Right. Mm-hmm. No, I yeah. agree. By the way, Michael Winger, like super well-respected um, has been, in a bunch of like really smart front offices was with Oklahoma city with Sam Hinkie, um, was with obviously the Clippers as their general manager under Lawrence Frank that had like a real high level brain trust, like super, super smart, smart people there, super sharp people there, uh, working in that organization. Um, obviously, you know, I think the world of Sam Presti and th- that organization, I think they're absolutely tremendous there and have been for a long time. So uh, his, his pedigree is, absolutely incredible really really thought of highly in nba circles so look i think this is is as good of a hire as you're going to get for a first time gm uh at the end of the day so yeah we'll see if it works out but you know has all of the um all the experience that you can think of uh to make this work mark uh do you have any other thoughts here any other concerns any other takes you got to get off no, you look. I I didn't have tons of draft thoughts today, but I did have a lot of clips to unload. So I appreciate you letting me do so. I appreciate that, Mark. Tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what's going on. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at mg underscore Schindler. I have a Patreon that I would appreciate you subscribing to if you have the means to do so. That really helps me, especially in the midst of moving to Atlanta right now. I'll be house hunting the next week and a half while I also cover a shit ton of basketball. So it'll be good. Um. But yeah, that's uh, that's where you can find me. That is correct. Um, go to the Athletic. Keep me employed over there. Go to this podcast and continue to listen to it. Go to the uh, YouTube channel, Game Theory Podcast with Sam Facini. Go subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, everything you can to support the show. Hit a like button on this YouTube stream if you're watching on YouTube or if you do watch it on YouTube. That's about it. We will be back later this week with more probably after after we know what the finals are maybe. I'm like in the middle of draft guide stuff right now, so we're probably going to do three yeah, times this week. That. And then, yeah, it's going to be pretty wild. Uh, so keep it locked here. But until next time, we will talk soon.